Okay, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. I'm Doug, and today we are going to do episode nine of From the Earth to the Moon for Miles and Miles. This was um, directed by Gary Flater and written by Eric Bork and aired May 3rd, 1998, and stars essentially Ted Levine and practically no one else. This is really, um, it's ostensibly the story of Apollo 14, but it's really an episode purely about Al Shepard. It's, it's kind of like the trials and tribulations of Al Shepard. That should have been the subtitle. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and we saw Ted Levine way back in episode one, uh, playing uh, Al Shepard there for his Freedom 7 uh, flight and aftermath just for a few minutes. And then really didn't haven't seen much of him since then. Yeah. Cue the, uh, well, you know, we have to make the, the usual Ted Levine joke, right? <laughs> right. It puts and the I moon rock in the basket. <laughs> Or it gets the um, hypergolic propellant again. <laughs> it gets the Meniere's disease. Um, and I will just say that for anyone who's interested in Al Shepard, I would strongly recommend Neil Thompson's excellent biography, Light This Candle, The Life and Times of Alan Shepard. That that wasn't the one that he wrote because he wrote a book with, I think, Deke Slate. Right? Yeah, he wrote a book with Deke Slate. That was, on, you know, as... As it always is the case, biographies are better than autobiographies because autobiographies are always sanitized and a biography will tell the truth. You think Alan Shepard's autobiography was sanitized? Nah. The man who had the, the, the warning, what kind of mood is he in, you know, thing right on his door. Like to indicate whether anybody should go near him or not. You right. think he that's sanitized? Nah. And you know who was a uh, you know let's just say without going into details was known for his uh, fondness for women. Yeah. Um, so um, to get back to the episode, um, a lot of focus in this on his Meniere's disease, and and we begin by seeing uh, Al Shepard on his way to visit some um, some oil Ooh. men who are absolutely filthy. And yeah. Al has invested in an oil well. Um, and, uh, you know, they contrast the filth of the oil men, their face, their clothes with Shepard's fancy suit, you know, perfect hair. He's riding around in the car with the developer. Um, and we see him early on in the episode have an episode of uh, vertigo and uh, nausea and vomiting uh, that's sort of humorously made into a, a bit where they get a photograph of him. Like they, the, the oil men all want a photograph with Shepard. He doesn't really want to do it. He signs a few autographs and he wants to get the hell out of here, get right. out of there. And they end up, they end up snapping some candidates of him vomiting. With them in so the background. Yeah. So it's light. It's another, another, um, a chance to sort of point out the, how the astronauts are, are constantly in the spotlight. You know, they're, they're so famous, especially a Mercury astronaut. Um, especially America's first astronaut. That's right. And, right. uh, you know, that they have to, they just have to deal with that forever and they're not, it's not entirely what they signed up for. So they're always, there's always a little plus minus about it. There's a great bit, um, very early in the episode where they show, um, Shepard and Tom Stafford at the McDonald plant. 
um, and they are working on a, their Gemini spacecraft, and then it is revealed um, that Shepard is taking a diuretic because he's having vertigo. And it, what's interesting is the way that they played is, I think, pretty honest, that Stafford is... He makes some noises about being worried about Al, but what he's really worried about is himself, because they are a team and a pair, and if Shepard is grounded, Stafford could potentially lose his flight as well. Yeah. Yeah, that was actually well done. It had a sort of a very kind of authentic little ring, that scene where he asks him, you know, he mentions, Shepard mentions that he's been having some vertigo, and he's getting checked out the next day. And uh, they discuss the fact that, uh, you know, he says, well, Deke doesn't want to split us up. So Tom Stafford says, you know, so I have a vested interest because I'm going to go to if you're not flying, I might lose my chance. Which is, by the way, exactly what happens. Um, So Grissom and John Young end up flying the first Gemini mission. Stafford gets booted when Shepard gets grounded, although... That having been said, Stafford flies on Gemini 6A and 9A, so he gets two flights. Yeah. Um, He also flies in Apollo 10, uh, so he does okay. Uh, But at the time, he didn't know any of that. So, uh, so, you know, he is, in fact, correct. And then we find out that uh, Al is eventually completely grounded, and then he gets asked to sort of co-head the astronaut office with Deke Slayton, sort of the two astronauts who are now grounded are sort of stuck together running the administrative end of the astronaut office right and that's where uh shepherd shepherd's secretary puts as a slot on his door and she puts a photo of shepherd with various expressions like an eight by ten um you know photo of headshot and it says today's mood on it and so, <laughs> so you know depending like if shepherd so then shepherd was was barking at some people in his office so she sorts through these photos and she goes up in the episode and slides in a scowling al shepherd photo yeah he's yelling at gene cernan for talking to the press so in um in i think in both the right stuff and like this candle that the two pictures that she had uh one was him scowling one was him smiling one was referred to as smiling al and the other was the icy commander (laughs) (laughs) that's what what they were known as Um, And then uh, we see Shepard getting some sort of award. And I looked online and I couldn't figure out exactly what award that was, where he is uh, essentially roasted and and mocked as as sort of part of this award where everybody makes jokes at his expense and he has to endure this ridiculous, insulting black and white movie about him uh, sort of that directly heads on acknowledges that he's barely flown. In space, really rubbing, rubbing a sore spot for Alan Shepard, and and he has to uh, not just endure the whole dinner. He can't even drive there himself because he has a sort of an attack ringing in his ears on the way. So like he not only is he reduced to not flying, he can't even drive, and he's stuck in the passenger seat of his car with his wife driving, which he clearly finds galling. Right, and he also finds galling the fact that they let him fly his T thirty eight, which, uh, but you know, but he has to fly with a co pilot in case he has a spell, he could take over, and he, he 
clearly chafes at that every time he has to do it. You know, they probably shouldn't have let him fly in a T-38, given what we said in prior episodes about the T-38s killed way more astronauts than anything anything else. Um, but uh, they, let him, <laughs> they let him fly his T-38 if he had a backup with him. Um, and they, there's a couple of scenes where they show him kind of conspicuously being a dick to his backseater. Yeah, he's he's clearly bristling. Uh, he basically uh, most of the episode uh, is him bristling, um, or being, or or sort of he's grumpy or he's he's disappointed, um, and or enduring um, some kind of some kind of insult to his ego. One could say, right? And his threshold to be insulted is super low. Yes, he is highly sensitive. I mean, it's like <laughs> the guy's covered in paper cuts and you're flinging lemon juice out. Um, so it's uh, Tom Stafford comes to the rescue um, and tips him off that he heard about a surgeon, William F. House, who, by the way, also invented the cochlear implant. Hmm. That's not a bad career. Smart dude. Um, um, who tips him off to a surgeon who might be able to fix his uh, Meniere's disease by draining fluid off of his inner ear. Um, and then uh, we see Shepard go out, meet with House, consider it, and ultimately uh, opt to have the surgery. And he even gets insulted when he's under anesthesia. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the nurses is like, this is America's first astronaut. And the other woman goes, John Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> So just to sort of like, you know, get one last dig in. Right. And then he, he, he you know, he's got a, he's still got a bandage on his head and he shows up at the one of the Apollo briefings with the hope that he's going to with the active astronauts, sort of with the hope that maybe he's going to be back on the in the saddle as an Apollo astronaut on the on the rotation. And um, all the other astronauts kind of like mumble grumble or you know take digs at him like what's he doing here <laughs> old fart yeah he's he's not flying has been yeah he's he's screwed so but you know but in real life and they you know they touch on this a little bit like in real life there was intense resentment to the fact that he magically jumped to the top of the flight roster right. uh, and they have for example fred hayes who's played by uh, adam baldwin none other than animal mother from full metal jacket yep. um appears here sort of like grousing and and bitching about like hey how is that guy jumping to the front of the flight roster but that's exactly what happened and basically he had an in with deke slayton and as co-head of the astronaut office he was essentially able to get himself assigned to the next flight as commander no less right and him and two having miss gemini right and they're right. making jokes about how it's three rookies you know <laughs> the flight is three rookies <laughs> you know and you know i think kind of like um you know if, if this episode is fully about uh, Shepard, the, the two people that's really not about are, are Ed Mitchell and Stu Rusa, his Apollo 14 um, Who? You know, crew. And, Who's right, that? Exactly. I mean, they really, really, you know, Ed Mitchell gets a little bit of screen time, and we'll talk more about Ed Mitchell uh, later on, but. Man, man, if I was those guys and this was like the episode of From the Earth to the Moon that was about my flight to the moon, I'd be kind of, I'd be a little pissed off. Like, <laughs> hey, I went to the moon too. Well, you know, Shepard wasn't, he, he, they didn't even put him on as a, on a backup crew. He just got slotted into, you know, back in line. 
Right, um, exactly. So, right, it was supposed to be back up one and then fly uh, uh, three or six later, depending on where you fell in rotation. Yeah. Um, Even if they um, would have maybe, you know, maybe jumped him from back up to a, a primary flight a little bit sooner, you know. Still. Right, and he was actually supposed to fly 13. That's why, for example, right. in the movie Apollo 13, they're supposed to go to Frau Moro. And, and, and Shepard and his crew end up doing it because uh, uh, 13 obviously doesn't make it. And there's a good bit where they even talk about the fact that he's been the beneficiary of two other disasters, right? 13 happened, so he gets to go on 14. And uh, he's ground. He would have flown Apollo 1, but he's grounded because of his ear and isn't aboard the capsule on the fateful day of the fire. Right. Um, and then um, they they put a real bit of a gloss on Gordo Cooper, because Gordo Cooper was supposed to be the commander uh, of, of Apollo 14 originally, um, and Gordo was not well regarded in the astronaut office. Deke especially didn't like him. Um, Gordo was lackadaisical about training, and he had very famously gone off... Um, to do car racing when they had basically told him, don't go do this car racing thing. It's dumb. It's a waste of time. It's stupid. Don't do it. And then he ran off and did it. <laughs> and they they say that basically after, after that, Gordo was done. And there's a little bit there where they show Gordo giving a very bitter television interview and trashing Al Shepard by name. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um. But nonetheless, uh, we then jump uh, to January. Is it January? I think it's January. It's 11th or 31st of 1971, uh, where we see the launch. And once again, Jerry Griffin is our flight director. Yeah, January 31st. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's and then there's not a lot. There's not a lot shown. They just sort of leap to those guys in lunar orbit. You know, they really just, and again, they're moving fast at this point in the show because they know the audience has seen this stuff. So they, they pretty much jump right, right to, uh, to once the lunar module is separated from the command module and they're getting ready for the landing. Right. And this episode is mostly, mostly about Alan Shepard, the trials and tribulations of Alan Shepard. And, much less about the technical kind of details of the flight, with one big exception, and that is when they're actually landing in the LEM, um, which we're, I guess, going to get to, um, because they have a computer glitch. And the com- I think the computer glitch is in some ways the most interesting part of the episode. Yeah, it, it really, it kind of is. It, well, it's it's also the final trial somehow of Alan Shepard. It's like... Right, like he's 99% <laughs> of the way there. He's like two feet from the, from the landing zone and the computer doesn't work. And it might result in them just, they could get almost down there and then have to just, the, the capsule would auto abort and fly them back up. So, but, orbit. But, so for the listeners, what they show in the episode is uh, there's a short circuit of the abort switch. Um, so the astronauts are now in lunar orbit in the lunar module, Ed Mitchell and um, and Al Shepard. And the danger is if the computer gets an abort command by error during the landing, it could uh, either, um, you know, fire the descent engine and get them out or separate the stage and fire the ascent engine to send them back to orbit. Uh, Either of which is catastrophic for the mission and could even result in them being killed depending on when it happened or how they were oriented. They had in, you know, they make it look like in the show, like they had 
just a few minutes. Um, but they have about between three and four hours in real life f- to find a way to fix the computer, you know, test the fix, right, both at MIT and Grumman, test it in Houston, and then get it up to them in time for uh, PDI or power descent. Um, so in real life, they had a little bit more time. And the, uh, but, the, so the, oh, the cool thing also is the way they initially fix um, the light, the abnormal abort switch being on was they tap on the, they basically, you know, hit the side of the TV, so to speak, to um, jar loose, basically. At first. At first, a little short. But then right. they're worried, and that actually fixes it. But then they're worried that it's going to, this thing could go back. Obviously, if it's that uh, random and that goofy, if there's some other vibration, like when they turn the rocket on, right, to slow down, to enter, um, to descend, um, uh, you know, the uh, powered descent um, firing of the of the rocket. And on the limb, then that could it could turn on again. And if it turns on at that point, the computer is going to see it as a real abort, and it's basically going to change their trajectory and fly them back up into higher lunar orbit, so they can they're aborting the mission, so they can rendezvous and go home. And really, the the hero of this whole episode is Don Isles at MIT. Right, the hero uh, is a dork um, computer programmer. <laughs> Who was featured in Rolling Stone uh, for his efforts on Apollo 14. Like, he also wrote a book actually, recently, by the way, that uh, I, he, I haven't read, but this is right up your alley. This book is basically about, it's called Sunburst and Luminary, an Apollo memoir. Huh. It, it just and, came out in 2018. Interesting. I should check that out. The, um, the Apollo um, Lunar Surface Journal for Apollo 14 has a great page called Masking the Abort Discreet by Paul Field, where they explain exactly what they had to do in excruciating detail. And it's really interesting. And they came up with two plans. They had an initial plan uh, that would involve uh, Ed Mitchell entering a reset sequence very, very quickly um, at a critical time junction, but they were vulnerable in that time while he was typing in the keystrokes. If the abort signal came, it wouldn't be enough time. So they were, they had a few seconds of vulnerability that they were worried about. And then they had to come up with a second fix that was even more elegant, essentially letting the computer think it was in the abort mode already. Right. So they wrote two on the fly hacks to the code that ran the guidance computer um, that they basically had to, figure out so the guy that programmed the don isles one of the guys that you know programmed the computer and he came up with a way to do both those hacks which they then radioed um to to the the two astronauts in the lem they wrote down on a piece of paper and then entered those hacks um but what's interesting is when they did that, it allowed the computer to assume it was in the abort mode so it would ignore it. But if they actually had to abort, right, this was all to get them the PDI so they could head down. Right. If they actually had to abort, then Ed Mitchell has to 
reset the computer very, very quickly. He would, believe it or not, here's the actual sequence. He would have had to enter a verb 25, noun 7, enter 105, enter 400, enter 1, enter before they could abort. And in real life, you know, that's going to take you 20, 30 seconds. Right. And, right? The, and the fact is that the way the LEM is designed, the, the way they're flying it, the computer is flying the rocket um, that's decelerating or accelerating the LEM. And they're flying some of the um, guidance control. They're flying some of the attitude control to roll it um, and some degree of control of the rocket in terms of being able to fly, like, for example, laterally or horizontally around the moon's surface. But the descent and the ascent, and they're all computer run. Um, so that you know it's not the lem isn't flown i think we've discussed this before but the lem isn't they're not really flying the lem the entire way they're sort of they have certain axes they can control certain aspects they can control but the rest of it has to be programmed to change things so kind of like what i was getting at earlier here like i think they really give ed mitchell a short shrift and for example if you read through a lot of these astronaut books, many people say that nobody knew the lunar module better than Ed Mitchell and Fred Hayes. Like, of all the lunar module pilots and everybody, all the commanders, like, nobody knew it more than Ed Mitchell. And there's a, there's a bit there that's just a small acknowledgement to that that shows that Mitchell understands things better. Uh, I think Gary Cole plays Mitchell in his brief role, uh, where... You know, Shepard comes up with an idea that's a, a fix for their troubles, and then Mitchell immediately knows, like, no, it won't work. And Shepard's like, what do you mean it won't work? And then very quickly, Shepard has to be told, essentially schooled, like, you idiot, that's not how the program works. Right. So it's a, it's a little, just a quick bit there where they're in lunar orbit that sort of shows, you know, maybe a little bit of a weakness on Shepard's part in terms of his schooling. And how the fact that his his LMP is way ahead of him in terms of recognizing their problems and how they might fix it, right? Um, but they are able, with the help of Don Isles, uh, to land. Right, um, and the landing goes well once they they enter. They reprogram things and enter those couple of hacks. The the rest of the landing actually is perfect. And then we see sort of like a very, very thumbnail sketch um, of their EVA. Right. Otherwise uh, known as Alan Shepard's Redemption. <laughs> right. I mean, they mostly show, you know, um, him on the him on the ground um, sort of feeling relief that he's, you know, he says, like, it's been a long way, but we're finally here. Um, and then sort of a little bit of him goofing around with his golf on the moon which i i don't know i don't know call me the killjoy i always thought was ridiculous but whatever but you know what's interesting is their their second moonwalk is famous because they became exhausted like they basically got lost and exhausted i don't know if you've ever read about this is they're trying to reach cone crater um and they they're literally, they're walking around, they're getting overheated, they're using too much oxygen, and they're wandering around trying to find Cone Crater, 
um, and they basically get told, "Forget it. You're not gonna. You're not gonna make it." So they didn't actually achieve this huge objective uh, of their mission. And believe it or not, uh, many many years later, images from the LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, show that they were about a hundred feet. <laughs> from the crater but you know they were just you know you, there's no depth and they can't so they couldn't tell and so the upshot was like i mean it's it's interesting that they didn't show any of that because it would it would have been interesting to see them sort of getting tired out and disoriented on the moon right um ed mitchell by the way threw uh his uh his scoop handle like it was a spear that was the other chuck that they there's the other object thrown on apollo 14 that they didn't show <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I think Ed, I think Ed Mitchell threw a little shade at Shepard later in life because, you know, Shepard did in fact make that, he made that comment, you know, miles and miles and miles. Right, and, right. And I think Ed Mitchell said like, it actually went a few hundred feet, <laughs> you right. know, and sort of dribbled along the ground. <laughs> he was doing it one handed, I guess. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it can't be easy in a spacesuit. But, you know, he was trying to bring along like a whole, I think, you know, like a, a bunch of a putting green or something. And so they didn't let him. Right. Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> right. They were going to paint his, his pants. Ted Knight. Plaid. He, really good. Uh, he wanted a plaid um, suit. Right. At least the pants. Just the plaid pants. That's <laughs> oh, good. Um I think, am I wrong? Is this the first mission where the commander has a red stripe on his helmet? Yeah, I think it is. I think is. it might be, because on Apollo 11, for example, and I think on Apollo 12 as well, the um, the lunar module pilot and the commander had essentially identical spacesuits. Right. Um, and then they realized afterwards that it was hard to tell who was who, especially if the photograph wasn't from right up close. So this is the first time we see on the moon. Um, Jim, Jim Lovell had one on his suit for Apollo 13 that he never got to use. Uh, but we see a mission commander with a red stripe on his suit. I always wondered, you know, you know, the Jamaican beer is called red stripe. I always wondered uh -huh. if that had anything to do. Like, did somebody put a red stripe in there because there was somebody who had a sense of humor and loved Jamaican beer? Or was it? I, it, I, was I don't wondering. know. Or maybe they put the stripe on the beer because they were into the lunar the lunar program. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the, the beer is actually called Red Stripe. Oh, uh, is it really? Yeah, and it yeah. has a red stripe. It'd be weird if it had a green stripe. Yeah, it would. <laughs> Colorblind um, stripe. And then the the episode just sort of ends on this very wistful end where it shows it says it shows Al Shepard on the moon and it says Alan Shepard, you know, with the date and then poor Ed Mitchell's not even in the photo. Right. I think that's like a real picture, I think, of him. It is a real picture, yeah. but like poor Ed Mitchell. Well his shadow's in the real again. photo. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Ed Mitchell, um, Ed Mitchell uh, had a little bit of an interesting post-NASA career. He started writing and speaking about paranormal phenomena and UFOs, and uh, he did ESP experiments when he was on the Apollo 14 flight that he didn't uh, tell anybody about because he knew that he'd be ridiculed or reprimanded, and he published them in the Journal of Parapsychology, believe it or not, but... Hmm. Um, he ended up founding the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, which is sort of parapsychological research stuff. I don't think that that was regarded too highly by anybody at NASA. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think it's uh I don't think it's it's gotten very far, right? But he yeah, apparently he and he did this for years and years. He was really kind of a kind of a conspiracy theorist. I wonder if he thought the moon landings were faked. <laughs> now that would be impressive. <laughs> that would be awesome. You'd think uh, though and- that he would be like since he was he's kind of in that camp like <laughs> they would have asked him. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah. What did he say? He would have been like, listen, dude. <laughs> You know the UFOs is true, and and we have, the aliens are, are sending zero point energy to Earth, and you know, uh, and and there have been many aliens visiting the U.S., but I was on the moon, so stop being such a crazy conspiracy theorist. Right. Kubrick directed the whole thing, but you know both uh, both Ed and Stu. This is their only flight, and yep. this is obviously Shepard's last flight. Shepard's forty seven. Mm-hmm. When he walks on the moon, just damn impressive if you think about that. And Shepard actually um, did not. Shepard died fairly young. You he know, died like, of leukemia, I believe. Yeah, he was like in his sixties or something. I think. I'm pretty sure he had leukemia. I yeah, double check it. He had leukemia or lymphoma. Yeah, I know that he had a bloodborne malignancy. Here, let me pull it up really quick. He was pretty. Uh, he died in. Uh, he was seventy four. Yeah. yeah, he died in nineteen ninety eight. He was seventy four. By the way, I discovered while Wikipediaing. Um, so he went to uh, Shepard went to a, a naval academy, like a, you know, like a naval um, a preparatory school, like high school, I guess. Admiral, right before he went to Annapolis, right? Admiral Farragut Academy, and uh, there are other they've ha- they have other famous uh, graduates, including like uh, Charlie Duke, uh, his co NASA astronaut, and also Casper Van Dien. Really? <laughs> from his, Johnny Rico himself. Yes, from Starship Troopers is also an alumnus. So <laughs> you might, might say a third astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a more famous astronaut in some circles. Yeah. <laughs> um, Casper Van Dien, we're getting a little off topic, but if you ever get a chance, listen to some of Casper Van Dien's podcast. Like, he's really, really funny and self-deprecating. I really like listening to him. Um, you know, we don't, we're not going to get much of a chance to talk about Charlie Duke more because the uh, Apollo 16 is not really featured in this, in this series at all. Um, but Charlie Duke, um, he, he had an interesting life post NASA and he, I want to make sure I'm getting this right, but um, he he basically kind of said he was a bad person. Um, And he became very religious uh, after his, uh, after his, uh, after his moon flight and basically said that uh, I was a really a difficult person and I was a bad father and I was a bad husband. And then he became a Christian and sort of turned his whole life again. And now like sort of is very involved uh, in the ministry. So, hmm. I mean, we don't, we don't have much other chance to talk about Charlie Duke, but it's sort of, you know, again, we talked a little bit about the left seat, right seat thing, the way that the lunar module pilots often had a big change in their life after the flights, whereas the commanders often didn't, but you know, Ed Mitchell, Buzz Aldrin, Charlie Duke, right. You mm-hmm. can sort of see it on down through these guys, Al Bean, right. The left seat, right seat debate. Right. Um, but anyway, but we just to go back to Al Shepard, we sort of end on this wistful note. And he, I believe he did not, I, I think he never divorced. I think Al Shepard stayed married to Louise Shepard his whole life. Yeah. Uh, and some of the later episodes are going to focus more on the divorce 
the divorce question, but I'm pretty sure that no, they, he never they divorced they, Louise. They were married like 55 years or something like yeah, that. It's pretty impressive, especially for that time and in that place. <clears throat> All right, uh, check out um, the, the notes uh, on this episode. We've got some interesting clips, as we have for all the other episodes. Oh, and I, I have to, I have to um, voice an erratum. <clears throat> I, I said in the last episode when we were talking about um, Albine flying the lunar module. Remember I said I couldn't know, I didn't know if that was real or not. Right. So I did a fair bit of research and looked in about a million sources, and it actually is true that Albine did fly the lunar module on the far side of the moon for just a few minutes. And it's a little bit different than they portrayed it in the show. In the show, they portray it as Conrad gives him a chance, sort of on the spur of the moment, and he eagerly takes it. And actually, both are not true. Um, it actually turns out that Conrad had planned all along to let Bean fly the lunar module when they were out of radio contact, because he knew it was the only chance for him to let Al do it. So it was actually had been planned in advance by Conrad and Bean was reluctant to do it because he was afraid wow. he would get in trouble and he wanted to fly again. And he initially kind of passed on the opportunity and Conrad had to kind of encourage him to do it. And then he was worried that if he played around too much, it would affect their rendezvous. Hmm. So he was very reluctant and basically Conrad was like, it's okay and we can make the rendezvous no matter what. So uh, he, he let him do it. So it actually is true that Al Bean did fly the lunar module. That's that's cool. And it, it actually makes it nicer that the Pecan Rep sort of planned it yeah. out. It's that cool is, about both of them, actually. Yeah, that is very cool. All right. Should we wrap there for uh, episode nine? Yeah. Come back for uh, episode 10. Yeah. Next week, episode 10. All right. Thanks, guys. And remember, check out uh, the links that we've got posted as well that go with this episode that highlights some of the real events uh, that are depicted in the episode and uh, some interesting web pages about the computer hack. Also, you'd probably like our other podcast, uh, Popcorn Drink Combo, a movie podcast. Yes, for sure. All right. Thanks, everybody. Next time, episode 10. <laughs>